0: Good morning again. If you have not already, please join me by turning to the book of Micah. That's where we'll be for the next several weeks. I mentioned this in the, uh, the Friday uh, pastoral epistle, if you all uh, got that. If you didn't get it, or if you didn't read it, which I expect that you all did, I wanted to reiterate this. Someone pointed out to me last week that I told you don't call me uh, reverend, but I hadn't told you what you should call me. Uh, so I want to clear that up right now. If you want to take notes on this, you're welcome to write it down. Um, you may call me John. That's my name. Uh, if you must call me pastor, then please call me Pastor John. I would prefer that to Pastor uh, Beagle. Uh, but just in general, I'd very much prefer that you call me John. I know that might come hard to some of you, and that's, that's okay. And if you have a conviction that you, you must call me pastor, then I, I want to respect that, so I, I, I will try not to correct you. But you have my express permission to call me John, okay? I'm glad we have this chat. All right, now... Before we begin the book of of Micah, I want to offer a few comments by way of just explanation as to how I teach through books of the Bible. Uh, In the first week of a series, I typically do a more more general introduction to the whole uh, book. We look at background and context and purpose, uh, and we talk about all the kind of stuff you would find in the introduction to a book in a good study Bible. Uh, A friend of mine calls this a nerd week uh, because it's, it's fascinating to Bible nerds. Uh, Bible nerds like me, but in fairness, it is, it is God's Word, uh, and so I'd argue there's not many better things to be a nerd about. Uh, but the, the purpose of an, uh, of an introductory week like this uh, is not simply to satisfy my own or, or your own curiosity for obscure uh, background details uh, so we can bore people at parties. I can attest to you that that does bore people at parties, uh, but, but we do this to help prepare us to hear and understand and apply God's Word carefully and faithfully because we don't, we don't study the Scripture merely to be informed, we study Scripture to be transformed. Now, we have to remember the Bible is not just a collection of timeless spiritual maxims that we apply piecemeal to our lives as if we, we open up and play roulette with it, we flip through the Bible and find a verse that seems to fit for Today. Right? We, we, if God wanted us to have a spiritual book like that, He He would have given it. But in general, that's not what we have in Scripture, that God has chosen to reveal Himself to us, chosen to re- preserve that revelation of Himself through these various types of literature written by real people in real places addressing real situations. And despite how it's often used, the Bible is not a proverbial... Uh, Nose of wax being interpreted to mean whatever it is we happen to think it means as we read it. Rather, the Bible's meaning is determined by its ultimate author, God the Holy Spirit. And our interpretation and understanding of this meaning is bounded and guided by the various contexts in which it's written historical, literary, theological. So we don't want to read meaning into the Bible imposing our thoughts and assumptions on it. We want to read meaning out of the Bible, exposing what God has written for our instruction. Incidentally, that's why we call what we do here on Sunday morning exposition or expository preaching. It is exposing that which God has written. Now, I say all this in order to highlight that in order to, to understand what the, the book of Micah or any book of the Bible means and how it intersects with our lives, it's important for us to seek as best we can to understand and interpret it in light of its context, the situation in which it was written, what it's written to address, and how it ultimately fits into the entirety of the Bible's storyline that culminates in Christ. So to begin our study of the book of Micah, we'll look just at the first verse, verse 1, which functions as the the sort of the title of the book. What we read here gives us an opportunity to to think through some of the important background issues that will help us understand and apply Micah moving forward. Uh, So this morning we'll look at, first, the book's author, who wrote it. Second, its setting, the situation in which it was written. And third, the book's subject, what and for what purpose it was written. And then finally, how we can prepare our hearts to respond to Micah's message in the coming weeks, all right? So author, setting, subject, response. Will you pray with me as we begin? Lord, open our eyes to behold wonders from your word. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. First, then, the author. Look at me at the beginning of verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth. So, the author is Micah. Uh, Micah's name means, Who is like the Lord? We'll see a play on that at the end of the book in chapter 7, verse 18. As, as he ends the book, he, he ends with this rhetorical question Who is like you, O Lord? So Micah was from or, or lived in the town of Morisheth, maybe 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And that's all we know. That's all we know about Micah. That's all we know because that's all scripture tells us. We're told that he existed, that his name was Micah, he was from Morisheth, and that's it. Now, sometimes as we study the Bible, knowing more about the author can be very helpful for us. So we try to understand what's What's written. For example, knowing something about who Paul was, or who James was, or who Peter was, helps us understand more of their their writing. But here we're not told anything more about Micah. Now, that, of course, has not stopped people from speculating. It's interesting for me as I studied this week to find there's a great deal of debate among some scholars as to what Micah's profession was. Was he a farmer? Was he one of the town elders? Was he a prophet for his whole career? And there are arguments that are made for each, but I think they're primarily based more on conjecture than solid biblical evidence. But it's not really important that we know more about Micah. It doesn't matter that we know more about his profession or when he became a prophet or really anything about his personal life at all for that matter. But why? Why? Wouldn't knowing more about him help us to better interpret this book? Not necessarily. See, in the first place, we we have to say we don't need to know anything more about Micah simply because Scripture does not tell us more. Had we needed to know more about Micah in order to to understand this book, God would have told us. Because God has not told us more, it mustn't be necessary for us to know. But perhaps more crucially, we need to be be careful that we don't lose sight of that most important thing that we are told about Micah here. See, it doesn't particularly matter for our purposes as we study the book of Micah that, that he was from Moresheth, and it isn't all important that we don't know what his profession was, and it doesn't really matter that we know his name is Micah. What matters the most is that the word of the Lord came to him. Micah was a prophet, one who spoke God's Word with God's authority. Well, he's never specifically called a prophet in the book. He does affirm for himself that he has been called and empowered by God to speak God's Word. We see this in Micah 3.8. He says, but as for me, I am filled with power and with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Now, Old Testament prophets had two overarching uh, purposes. First, prophecy includes what we might call foretelling, proclaiming God's work in the future. This is the, the aspect of of prophecy that we probably are most familiar with. And as a result, sometimes we end up using the word prophecy or prophet simply to be a synonym for prediction. So we say someone's a prophet if it's someone who predicts the future. We need to be careful that we remember that prophecies in the Bible are not quite the same as predictions. Predicting, in our experience, is uh, something more like an estimate, making an educated guess, And our predictions, regardless of how well-educated and reasoned they are, are still fallible and uncertain. Just watch the weather. That's the case simply because we're not all-knowing. But that's not what the biblical prophets were doing. They were not predicting God's work in the future the way that we predict the the weather. They They were engaging in a ministry of foretelling that was a Proclaiming about what God had promised. So when they prophesy about God's work in the future, they're not speaking of what God would probably do, they're speaking of what He promised and purposed to do. So prophecy includes foretelling, but it also includes forthtelling. That is, proclaiming God's Word in the present. And this is an aspect of prophecy in the Bible that is, that is just as prominent, if not more so, than foretelling or future-oriented proclamation. The prophets were not merely seers who had uh, elaborate visions about what would happen in the future. They were also preachers who announced and applied God's Word to their contemporary audience. And in that sense, prophecy was not safe for their audience. It was not relegated to some impersonal, indistinct future time. It was addressed to their particular present situation. And this is what tended to get the prophets in trouble with their audiences. See, true prophets were not in the business of telling the people of Israel what they wanted to hear. And there were many false prophets in Israel that did that. Just as there are preachers today who will do it. Micah has some pretty harsh words for them, as we'll see. True prophets were those whom God spoke through, who only spoke what God truly said, regardless of whether the people wanted to hear it or not, and they often didn't want to. Israel's prophets served as what amounts to covenant prosecutors. They were tasked with presenting God's lawsuits against His sinful and rebellious people. They uh, reminded the people of God's mercy and faithfulness to them and their covenant obligations to Him. They warned the people of curses and judgment that they would bring upon themselves if they continued in their rebellion. And they called on them to repent and return to the Lord. So the prophets proclaim God's faithfulness to his people and to his own word, and at the same time issue these indictments of the people for their faithlessness to God and his word. And we'll see all of those, those aspects of prophecy as we look through the book of Micah. So, Micah, the author of the book, now the setting of the book. Where does Micah fit in the biblical story? What is going on at the time that Micah is, is exercising this prophetic ministry that kind of gives shape to what he's talking about. Look again at verse 1 where we read, the word of the Lord that came to Micah during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So that locates Micah's ministry for us. Uh, On this this broad timeline of of Israel's history, Micah is prophesying towards the last half of the 8th century century. B.C. So somewhere between about 740 and 700 B.C. That helps us to orient ourselves to what's going on in Israel when Micah was prophesying. This is why we read from 2 Kings 17 that gives us some context for what was happening in Israel in the years leading up to Micah's ministry and during Micah's ministry. We'll do a quick recap of Israel's history. You'll recall that God had redeemed these people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt, and entered into a covenant with them that they might be a, a holy nation, a, a sort of display people, reflecting His glory and goodness to the rest of creation, which incidentally was what Adam and Eve, their first parents, were initially tasked with to be a people to reflect God's glory. If they would obey His word, God promised to bless the people of Israel, but if they would not obey and instead worshipped other gods and rejected his word, he warned them that they would be subject to covenant curses, ultimately removal from the land he had given them. After some fits and starts, the kingdom of Israel had flourished under the reigns of David and Solomon, but after Solomon's death, the kingdom was torn in two. Ten tribes in the north continued to be called the kingdom of Israel, and its capital was Samaria. In the south, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin constituted the kingdom of Judah and continued this line of Davidic kings, the dynasty through which God had promised to bring his forever king, the Messiah. And for the time of of that division, both kingdoms began to decline. The northern kingdom abandoned the Lord and his word right from the get-go, worshiping idols, going their own way, and descending into more and more wickedness. The southern kingdom, called Judah, saw more periods of revival, had a few kings that were pretty faithful to God, but overall the spiritual and moral state of both kingdoms was increasingly corrupt. Except for those brief periods of revival in the south, both the Israelites in the northern kingdom and the Judahites in the southern kingdom largely deserted their allegiance to the covenant that their people had with God. They lived in open rebellion against God and so this is what we read about in Second Kings 17. It, the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And they worshipped other gods, and they followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. They set up sacred stones and asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree, and at every high place they burned incense. As the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done, they did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger, and even more so because they were in covenant with God. And what was plaguing God's people in Micah's day and ultimately what, what becomes the subject matter of Micah's, uh, of Micah's prophecy were these two overarching and deeply intertwined sins, Idolatry and injustice. So you think about it as a as a vertical sin and a horizontal sin. A vertical sin, one between the people and God, and a horizontal sin, one between the people and one another. And the people's fundamental sin, as we read over and over again, is idolatry. We see it if you read through the books of Samuel. Kings and Chronicles, over and over and over again, we read that the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. And especially that this evil was rooted in their idolatry, their their worshiping of false gods. So very clearly, 2 Kings 17, verse 12, where this account of Israel's downfall offers this simple summary statement. They worshiped idols, though the Lord had said, You shall not do this. So first and foremost, the people's sin is against God, with whom they've broken covenant, and thus, through their wickedness, expose themselves to his righteous and holy anger. See, they were they were to be a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And the first commandment that was to give shape to Israel's life is this people who were to reflect God's glory. Was that they shall have no other gods before me. The idolatry of the people, rejecting God and his ways, does not merely lead to, to false worship and forsaking their covenant with God vertically, it also leads to rampant injustice in Israel's society horizontally. So, having abandoned the worship of the only true God, the people increasingly oppressed those who bore his image. We'll see more of this as we go through the book as as Micah addresses these issues that are running rampant in Israel's society. And he, he makes this point as forcefully as anywhere else in Scripture. Sin against God is not compartmentalized. It's not sealed off from the real world as if it's just between me and him. A heart that's set on false worship will not only sin against God, but it will inevitably compound itself in sin against other people as well. We also see that the, the fruit of sin against other people is always produced by a root sin against God. No sin is simply horizontal. All sin eventually comes back to this fundamental sin that we don't want God to be God. We want to be God. And so in, in Micah, these, these two aspects of sin, idolatry and injustice, are, are inextricably linked together. We'll see that as we, as we go through the book. Now, in light of the people's disobedience to their covenant with God, we, we read again in Second Kings that the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, saying, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors and that I delivered to you through my servants the prophets. So this is where Micah comes in. He's one of those sent by God to warn his people about the consequences of their sin, to call them to return to him. Now, as an aside, because prophets like Micah often issue these stark warnings of coming judgment, we may find ourselves drifting into thinking that God is just this being vindictive. If we're not careful, we, we begin to think that the God of the prophets is merely an angry temperamental deity It is quite different from the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but that's not the case at all. So don't miss that the very fact that God spoke through the prophets to warn His people to return to Him is an act of grace. God didn't have to issue such warnings or pleadings, but He did, not because they deserved more chances, as if. There was some divine three-strike policy. He did this because of his own steadfast love and mercy. We read in Second Chronicles 36, in another account, this of Judah's eventual downfall and exile, this statement that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. Micah's ministry is occasioned by the people's sin. He's addressing them because they're in rebellion against God. But ultimately, his ministry is produced as a result of God's grace. So we must read it as such that Micah is the spokesman for the God who, while he is rightly angry, we read in Micah 7, 18 that this God does not stay angry forever, but delights to show mercy. That's something good to remember in general. And for those of us who are in Christ Jesus by faith, to hear a word of correction or rebuke according to the word of God is God's grace to us. It's often in this kindness that we are drawn Repentance. So that's something of the setting and the context in which uh, Micah is ministering. Now, what did he preach about? We've seen a little bit of this already, but what, what's his goal in prophesying? We read in, in verse 1 of, of Micah that this is the, the word of the Lord that came to Micah. It's the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So his prophecy has its as its subject. Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem, which is the capital of the southern kingdom. It's possible that the capitals of the two kingdoms are addressed in particular because Micah has harsh words for Israel's religious, social, and political leaders, especially their egregious breach of covenant with God. But taken together, we might also read this as simply saying that that Micah is addressing God's people in their entirety— and as Micah addresses God's people, he, he does so on these two main themes judgment and salvation. We could maybe amplify the words of verse 1, saying that Micah preached concerning the judgment and salvation of Samaria and Jerusalem. In fact, the book itself is actually built on these themes of judgment and salvation. It's structured a bit like a symphony, uh, with these themes introduced and repeated throughout a series of movements working up to a a crescendo at the end. There are three of these movements in in Micah. Uh, Each begins the same way. Each each movement begins with Micah calling the people to hear or to listen. And each movement has these themes uh, set in a minor key, lament, judgment, sin, and a major key, promise, hope, salvation. They kind of flow back and forth. Each movement begins with this minor key, an announcement of judgment, and then ends on a major key, promise of salvation. You see that. Micah One is the, the title of the book. It's preparing us to hear and understand the book in light of its context. And then the three movements. The first movement is found in chapters 1 and 2. It begins with the word in chapter 1, verse 2. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Listen, earth and all who live in it. And the theme of uh, judgment occupies the majority of this movement, the majority of chapters 1 and 2. And then the final two verses of chapter 2 introduce this hope of salvation. The second movement is chapters 3 through 5. It begins with the words in Micah 3.1, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel. Uh, And whereas in the the first movement, there's only two verses devoted to this future salvation of God's people, here chapters 4 and 5 are devoted to it in their entirety. This promise of hope is expounded more fully. And then the third movement is chapters 6 and 7. begins with this call in Micah 6.1. Listen to what the Lord says. Like the first movement, there's more space here devoted to the key uh, theme of God's righteous judgment against His rebellious people. But the book ends with this crescendo of hope. As Micah looks forward to the day when God will again have compassion on us, tread our sins underfoot, and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. And all this Micah says he will do not because of anything his, in his people, but it's entirely because of his own covenant mercy and love and kindness. And so, as Micah's name means who is like the Lord, so he ends his book by saying, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. And this reconciliation and restoration of God's people will be accomplished in the future, Micah says, through a ruler, a king, who unlike the failed kings of Israel and Judah will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and he himself will be our peace. And this king, Micah famously tells us, will not be born in the palace in Jerusalem, but in the most unlikely of places, Bethlehem. And so as Micah contains much of of God's indictment against the sin of his people, it also promises this future hope that one day there will be a new king who will lead his people out of their exile and slavery to sin. And even more striking in Micah's prophecies, we get hints, glimpses of the, the promise that this king is not merely going to be God's agent, God's representative, God's chosen ruler, but that this king, this rescuer, this savior is actually going to be the Lord himself. What was yet future to Micah, of course, we now know is passed to us in the coming and life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, author, setting, subject, response. How are we to prepare our hearts to respond to this book in the coming weeks? Let me offer a few suggestions. First, we have to to recognize that the book of Micah is God speaking, and God speaking to us. So it can be challenging when we come to a book like the the Book of Micah to hear it as God's word for us. Yes, of course, it is God's word. We affirm that, but it was written to a different audience at a different time in a different place, addressing issues that, on the surface, appear to be far removed from our lives. It's a bit easier for us to read and apply something like the letters of the New Testament. Right? The, at least they're written to Christian churches. We have more of a, a close relationship with the audience. It's, it's easier to draw a line from them to us in terms of how it fits into our lives. But a book like Micah can feel a lot more foreign to us. And all of this means that while we may affirm that Micah is God's word, we are ultimately can feel like we're just left listening to somebody else's conversation and trying to draw lessons from it. But, but one of the fundamental truths about the Bible is it's not just a record of what God said. It is what God says. I made a point earlier saying that we must remember that the Bible is not just a, a collection of inspirational, spiritual sayings to be unwrapped one by one like Hershey's Kisses. Rather, it's a, it's a book written by real people, to real people, at a real place, in history, addressing real issues, but we also have to remember that the Bible is not merely a human book. It's also God's Word, and it's not merely an account of what God spoke in the past, but what God is speaking now. By His Spirit, through His Word, God speaks to us now by the text of Scripture, including Micah. And so we need to come to this series through the the book of Micah with an expectation and a conviction that God is going to address Cornerstone Evangelical Free Church in 2022 through the word of the Lord that came to Micah in the days of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. By this mysterious and providential working of His Spirit, God uses His word to address us here, now, where we are in the present. So we have to remember as we gather, it's not merely to do a Bible study on the book of Micah, It's to hear God speak by his word. Now, if we hold the conviction that the book of Micah is the word of God, by which we will be addressed by God here and now, then we also have to be resolved to listen to what he says. And this is something that is repeated over and over again in Micah. Micah himself emphasizes this to his hearers. See, seven times in the book he He calls the people of God to hear, listen. Each major section of the book, like I said, begins with this call, listen. It's clear what he's calling his audience to do. And this listening is is not merely to hear with our ears, but to listen with hearts set to obey, set to receive the Word of God as it is. God's Word for us. So as the Apostle James said, we're, we're to set ourselves to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. And so deceive ourselves. And this is the, the kind of listening that Micah is calling us to. And, and this is important because this is precisely the kind of listening that God's people were not doing in Micah's day. Recall what we read from Second Kings 17 about the destruction of the, the northern kingdom of Israel that the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey, that I delivered to you through my servants the prophets, but they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God." This is also how the later prophet Zechariah evaluated what happened during Micah's day. Consider again the text from our first scripture reading. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. And We'll see Micah address all of these issues as as we go through. But what did Israel do? Zechariah says, they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by His Spirit through the earlier prophets. So we must take care how we listen. Much Like the author of Hebrews warned, chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3 says, as the Holy Spirit says, he's quoting scripture, he doesn't say as the Holy Spirit said, he says as the Holy Spirit says, now today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Part of this means opening ourselves to how God will use his word to address, convict and change us personally. So we can't We can't listen to God's Word primarily with a view to how it applies to other people out there. We can't be concerned with primarily what I call a ministry of elbowing. That's where you hear something from God's Word and you elbow the person next to you and say, are you paying attention? You really need to hear this. No, God is going to address us as a church. He's going to address us individually. This is like flying on an airplane where you need to put on your own mask and ble- breathe the, the cleansing, life-giving oxygen of God's Word for yourself before you can help another do the same. Then finally, we need to remember that while we do indeed hear the book of Micah as God's Word for us in our time, and our place, we don't do it in precisely the same way as Micah's original audience did. So God's... Word through Micah addresses us at a different point and as a different people in God's plan of redemption. And as Micah served as a a covenant prosecutor, correcting God's people and calling them back to covenant faithfulness, announcing the the threat of God's judgment against their obstinate disobedience, we receive the words of Micah, a prophet of the old covenant, through Christ, the prophet of a new covenant and better covenant. And so we will approach Micah's admonitions differently. We receive Micah as God's word to us, but God's word to us through and in light of his final word. For as the author of Hebrews said, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And and while Christ does and will offer us correction and call us to faithfulness, And will do so through the words of Micah. For those of us who have found refuge in him by faith, he does not do so as our prosecutor, but as our advocate. Yes, he will teach us, but he will not threaten us. Yes, he will correct us, but he will not accuse us. We will be admonished to heed Micah's warnings for God's people, examining our own lives in light of what he preaches. But Christian, we will will not do so in fear of retribution, curse, or exile. Rather, we we can hear knowing that the Savior King that Micah promised to God's rebellious people has come to us in the Lord Jesus. And that as Micah promised that God will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea, So God has done already with our sins and iniquities through Christ who himself bore our sin, our judgment, our exile, who took on the judgment due to our covenant breaking that we might receive the life and blessing of his perfect covenant keeping. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks that you speak by your word, that you have not hidden yourself, but have revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you speak now by your word, that you address us. So Lord, as we study this book, I pray that you would convict us, challenge us, change us. Convict me as I, as I study. Help us to, to hear what you will say to us through the words of your servant Micah. And Lord, I pray that we might be drawn more to the Lord Jesus through his words. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.